welcome to the latest employment law podcast from Stevenson Harwood's international employment team. I'm River Clark, an associate in the team, and I'm joined by Richard Friedman, a partner in the employment team. Welcome, Richard. Thank you, River. Great to be joining you. Today, we're going to talk about employers' FAQs and tricky areas when instructing occupational health advisors. This is a hot topic for employers, particularly since COVID, when we have employees suffering from both physical effects of long COVID and the mental health impact caused by the pandemic. So let's kick off with when should occupational health be instructed? That's a really good question and one employers often ask us. The first port of call is to check your sickness policy. Some sickness or absence management policies set out a trigger point for consulting with occupational health. If that is the case, then follow the policy. If there's no formal trigger point, contacting occupational health should be considered at an early stage after an employee is absent for a prolonged period or after a number of short-term absences related to stress. If you work in a large organisation, you may even have a dedicated occupational health team. River, can you tell us what does a good occupational health referral look like? What questions should employers be asking? Employers often find it tricky to know exactly what to ask. Luckily, there is some helpful case law in this area. The case of Gallup versus Newport City Council held that when seeking advice from outside clinicians, employees should pose specific practical questions directed to the particular circumstances of an individual's condition. The occupational health clinician may give an indication if they think it is likely or unlikely that the individual is disabled, but this is a legal question rather than a medical one. Only an employment tribunal can reach a view on it. The best referral forms will ask questions about the different elements that make up the disability definition under the Equality Act 2010, i.e. if the individual has a physical or mental impairment that has a substantial and long-term adverse effect on their ability to do normal daily activities. I agree. And a well-drafted occupational health referral form could ask the clinician to address specific areas such as the nature of the employee's condition and the symptoms it causes, how long it has lasted and is likely to last, the effects on the employee's normal day-to-day activities, what, if any, medication the employee is taking and the effects of it, the triggers for the employee's condition, both inside and outside the workplace, and any adjustments that the employer might make to assist the employee's return to work. Again, We are trying to avoid them offering an opinion about the legal definition of disability, but rather extract the relevant information and in particular practical adjustments that could help. River, if the information provided indicates it is likely that the employee will deem to be disabled, what should an employer do? Under the Equality Act 2010, when an employee is disabled, an employer will have a legal duty to consider making reasonable adjustments. Whether any potential adjustments are required will depend on whether they are reasonable in the circumstances. The EHRC code highlights a number of adjustments that it may be reasonable for an employer to make. For example, altering a disabled worker's hours of working or training. This could include allowing a disabled person to work flexible hours to enable them to have additional breaks to overcome fatigue arising from their disability or permitting part-time working or different working hours to avoid the need to travel in the rush hour. Or another example is assigning a disabled worker to a different place of work or training, or arranging home working. For example, 
relocating an employee's workstation to an accessible place. A failure to comply with the duty to make reasonable adjustments is a form of discrimination. Richard, obviously the topic of health is very personal and sensitive. Do employers have to take specific precautions dealing with such data, given the UK GDPR and data protection requirements? It's a good question, and certainly something of which employers need to be aware. An employer will need to consider the legislative requirements for collating, storing and processing information concerning workers' health, given that it amounts to special category data under the UK GDPR. I'm sure you'll be pleased to hear we're not going to delve into the data protection regime, which is beyond the scope of this podcast, but in very brief terms, employers should not use consent as the basis for processing such health data, given the imbalance of power in the employment relationship. Instead of relying on consent, employers need to look at one of the other grounds in the UK GDPR for lawful processing of special category data. For example, where it is necessary for the purposes of carrying out the obligations and exercising the specific rights of the controller or of the data subject in the field of employment law. Richard, I know you've said employers shouldn't be relying on consent from a GDPR perspective, but presumably employers still need the individual's consent to get a report. The Access to Medical Reports Act 1988, or AMRA for short, applies to reports prepared by a practitioner who has been responsible for the clinical care of the individual. So it usually covers reports by an individual's GP or by a consultant who has previously treated them. However, almost any previous clinical involvement between a doctor and individual can trigger the application of AMRA, so that's important to keep in mind. If AMRA applies, there are a number of steps an employer must take including informing the individual of their intention to make an application for the medical report, gaining consent from the individual to the application of the report, advising the individual of their rights under AMRA, and whether they wish to see the report before it is supplied to their employer. If the report is not subject to AMRA technically, which is often the case with occupational health reports, given frequently there is a new relationship between the individual and occupational health advisor, guidance provided by the General Medical Council makes it clear that If an employer requests a medical report on a patient, the doctor will still need to be satisfied as to the employee's consent. Some employers will therefore comply with the requirements of AMRA, even if they are not technically required to do so, in order to satisfy the doctor in question that the employee has consented. But the next question is, what if the employee doesn't agree to go for an occupational health referral? There is some helpful case law in this area by which the employer can be guided, in O'Donoghue versus Elmbridge Housing Trust, Miss O'Donoghue had been off work for more than three months with stress or depression, and the housing trust had sought to investigate her illness. However, after lengthy correspondence, it had failed to secure her cooperation and terminated her contract. The tribunal held that the employer's decision to dismiss for incapability was within the range of reasonable responses in view of O'Donoghue's refusal to cooperate. This was upheld by the Court of Appeal, finding that there was a fair dismissal where an employee failed to cooperate in consenting to the employer obtaining medical evidence, i.e. the employer can act on the evidence it already has. It's also important that the employer considers not just occupational health, but other medical opinions, such as that of the GP. That's illustrated in the case of Matthews and British Telecommunications PLC, in which an employment tribunal considered that In the circumstances where Matthews was declining to engage with an occupational health assessment, a reasonable employer would have been wise to depart from its normal procedure and ask for a report 
from his GP. Matthews may well have declined to give permission for this, but BT simply did not ask. By failing to do this, and then deciding to dismiss in the absence of any meaningful medical evidence, BT had acted unreasonably. This case demonstrates that dismissal may be unfair if the employer has not made reasonable attempts to obtain the necessary medical evidence by alternative means. On to our final question of today's podcast. Assuming an employee does give their consent to getting an occupational report and it is sent to you, how far can it be relied upon? A great final question, River. And luckily, there are a couple of key cases dealing with this point. In Gallup and Newport City Council, the occupational health advisor regularly informed an employer that Mr Gallup was suffering from stress, which manifested itself in the form of lack of sleep, nausea, lack of appetite, irritability and an inability to concentrate, among other things. But considered that Mr Gallup was not disabled for the purposes of the Equality Act 2010. The employer relied on that occupational health advisor's bold statement about disability, and the Court of Appeal judgment essentially held that an employer cannot simply leave a decision as to whether an employee is or is not disabled to the say-so of a medical advisor. An employer has to form its own judgment on such matters. In another case, Donlean and Liberetta, a judgment held that the employer did not acquire constructive knowledge of an employee's disability, where it had taken reasonable, albeit not exhaustive, steps to ascertain whether the employee was disabled. The employer had not just rubber-stamped an occupational health report that stated that the employee was not disabled. It had asked further questions of its occupational health advisors, held return-to-work meetings with the employee and considered correspondence received from her GP. The Court of Appeal held that, viewed as a whole, the employer's actions were sufficient to avoid having constructive knowledge of the employee's disability. Thanks, Richard. In terms of our key takeaways from today's podcast, would advise employers to comply with any sickness policies in terms of a trigger point to contact occupational health in the absence of any policy, do not leave it too long. In any occupational health referral, try to post specific practical questions about the particular circumstances of the individual rather than asking for a yes-no answer as to whether the employee is disabled. If the employee is likely to be disabled, consider any reasonable adjustments to make. Remember the importance of ensuring compliance with data protection legislations and carrying out any required steps under the Access to Medical Records Act. Consider other medical opinions where necessary. And don't just blindly rely on the contents of an occupational health report. Form your own judgment on the contents and what it means. Thank you, River. And thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. That brings us to the end of today's podcast. Remember, you can subscribe to the whole series on iTunes and Stitcher or listen to previous episodes by visiting our Employment Law Hub, www.employmentlawweb.com. Thank you for listening.